ask that you would open our minds, our hearts, that we might receive what you have for us out of your word. Help me uh, to be clear. Uh, help me to be able to focus uh, with the amount of pain that I'm in. So thank you that we get to open your book, your book. And thank you that you've protected it through the centuries. And that we can open it, whether it's on a, a phone or a pad or a, actual pages. We can open it and have confidence that we are reading uh, the Word of God. It's God breathed and it's powerful. It changes us. It teaches us and it rebukes us if we need that. It corrects us to get back on a path that we should be on and it instructs us in righteousness so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work that you've prepared for us to walk in. And and you did that before you created the earth. (laughs) So just you are beyond us and we thank you that you have made yourself known. So help us to see you well this morning in your word. We ask for the glory of Christ our Savior. Amen. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 again. Just doing this short series. This is week 4 on this, which is kind of kind of reviewing for most of us uh, the church. Its beginnings, what it looked like in, in its initial um, years, and how it should still be what the church looks like today. God's intent for the church hasn't changed in 2,000 years. And so it's been kind of a a wonderful uh, review of this material. And when I say it's a review, if if you read through your Bible like I do every year, then it definitely is a review for you. Uh, It's been many years uh, since we actually went through this passage. I think it was 04, 05 or something like that. And uh, just because of what has happened in the last year with COVID and so on, and all the stress that's been put on the church through, uh, in a variety of ways, I thought this would just be a, a good thing for us to get the encouragement of what we are to be as God's people today um, and be part of His community. And I, I've stressed that you know the Bible uses different metaphors for the church in the Scripture. Um, one of them is it's a flock, like sheep, and we are sheep, and we're dumb like sheep many times. But we have a great shepherd, and the Lord is our shepherd. And uh, he invited us into his flock, and he protects us. You know, He died for us, of course he's going to protect us. So it's, we're a flock. We also see in the scripture that the, the church is like a human body with lots of different pieces and parts. And some of you are a little toe. I think I'm a toenail. But, uh, you know, it could be an eye or an ear or whatever it may be, but that we all make up one body. Now, that's true of the universal church, and it's also true of a local church, you know, that we're like a human body. And each piece playing as part makes a difference. Now, when you get old like I'm getting, I'm not there yet, but when you get old like I'm getting, you begin to realize how important each functioning part can be because, like, I have parts that don't function very well anymore. I can't say I really like it. You know, knees are bad. I mean, my back, of course, is much better since my last surgery. Um, and I'm not complaining. The Lord is good to me. I can see. I can hear. I can walk. I can talk. I can really talk when it's about the Bible. Uh, you know, I, I can live life with great joy 
even with the physical uh, infirmities I have, headaches and so on. But, you know, when one piece is not functioning as well, it's hard to get things done, isn't it? I recently had the joy of being able to help Pastor Tom and Sandy over at their house doing uh, a remodel. And uh, Pastor Tom was doing mudding on the sheetrock, and he came in one day and he was talking about how badly his hand was hurting with arthritis from that. And, of course, I've done a lot of that in my lifetime. Not only did I do it for a living early on, but I've done a lot of it in my own house and other people's houses uh, as well, and it's something I enjoy doing. So I said, "Oh, let me let me come and help." And and but it's like his his hand was not functioning very well. There is some time sensitivity there. So that's just that you know the human body. Uh, it's degrading as uh, generating day by day. Paul says, and the older we get, the more we realize it. But we also see that the church is like a building, a temple, right? We're called that, a temple of the living God, Ephesians 2, and also in 1 Peter 2, it's compared to that. We're, we're pieces of the building, and Peter uses the term, we're like living stones in the building. And Jesus is the chief cornerstone, everything's built upon him, you know. And, uh, and we're being built into this uh, living temple as a dwelling place for God, is how Paul put it. So, beautiful metaphors, right? Uh, we're, we're a field. And uh, be glad that God uh, digs where he needs to dig to get roots out or weeds out, and then he plants things in us and he causes the growth. You know, he uses that as a metaphor for evangelism, but also of the, of the church. Well, the book of Acts doesn't use a lot of metaphors. It just gets right down to the topic of community. That is what the church is seen as, a community of, of God's people, a spiritual community that is living within uh, a larger, broader community. You know, the, 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 there was the church. And then, of course, there was still the, those that had rejected Christ but were still part of God's people Israel and worshipped as they had since the Old Testament. And then, of course, you had the broader, much broader community of the Greek world and the Roman world. The Romans were in power. So there's a small community living within larger communities. And, and that's what we see in, in the book of Acts, that we are a community. And a community is just a group of people that are, you know, most generally in the same geographical area. But they have common interests, common goals, common purposes in life. And, and if you haven't picked it up yet, we know that the world has that. The world, which is, you know, under Satan's control. The world, which is opposed to God and his people. They're, they are like-minded. They are, you know, have the same purpose. And that is reject God and live for self. And, and let's get, you know, get in the face of those people that tell us we shouldn't do that. So... You know, that is that community. I'm glad that I'm part of God's community. Uh, we have like goals, like purposes, like focus in life. A universal church should have that, and every local church should have that as well. So we're going to read our text that we've been kind of using as a base uh, one more time. So we're in, picking up in verse 42. Uh, the church was born on this day in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, came and 
filled the believers and they began to do all kinds of stuff that was unusual, like speaking in languages that they didn't know before that day. And, uh, and then Peter spoke in a language that everyone could understand, and that was the language of the gospel. <laughs> First gospel message preached after Jesus ascended into heaven, and 3,000 people were added to the church that day. They believed and were baptized. And, and, and then in verse 42 and following the, till the end of uh, chapter 2 through 47, this, this is a summary paragraph of what life was like in the early days. Not just the day that Peter preached, but four days after that, a summary statement. So here we are again, Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Most evangelical churches see this as kind of a, a statement of purpose of what ministry is to be all about, particularly verse 42, that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And, uh, and so we've, we're taking this paragraph and seeing marks that existed in that early spiritual community, and that they should be the same marks that exist in every church today. And the first mark that we talked about was that they were a unified community. Right in the text, it says that they were of one mind. They were of one mind. And I, I pointed out to you that the, the word hamamuthadon uh, is translated differently uh, out of the 12 times it's found in the New Testament. But 11 of those times is found in the book of Acts, they were of one mind, one purpose, one passion. Uh, it's kind of the idea of that word. And we talked about the fact that the, you see that word used in relation to the world. Those that didn't know God, they were united. They were a united community, and the church was a united community as well. Unified uh, community. Secondly, we saw that they were a biblical community, right? A biblical community. What were they devoted to? First of all, the apostles' teaching. What was the apostles' teaching? It was the teaching of Jesus. <laughs> you know, Jesus is so wonderful. He has said to them on, on the night that he was betrayed, you find it in the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, where he says, you know, I'm, I'm going to be going away, right? I'm going to come back and get you, don't worry. Uh, but, you know, the Holy Spirit's going to come. He'll be not only your comforter, but he'll be your teacher. And he will remind you of everything that I taught you. So it's joyful knowing that as they wrote the epistles, and they're quoting the Lord many times, they have perfect recall of what Jesus said. And, and, and the rest of what we read in their epistles is exactly what Jesus said as well. Sometimes put it in other words, 
And then the Lord also revealed new teaching to them as well. So the apostles' teaching was the Lord's teaching, and the Lord's teaching was basically the Old Testament, but fulfilled in Christ. We, we talked about that, that Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. It came to fulfill it. So everything, you know, and you get on the day of resurrection in Luke 24 as he's traveling the Emmaus Road with those guys. He begins to tell them everything out of Moses and the law and so on. He says, they we're all talking about me. And then he said the same thing to the disciples in the upper room that very night. He says, everything Old Testament, it was all about me. And we talked about that uh, as well, the tabernacle, the temple, the, all the pieces of furniture in the process of their worship, every sacrifice, the high priest, the mercy seat, you know, I mean, it was all Christ fulfilled in our great Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the, the apostles continue to teach. And the church was built, according to Ephesians 2, 19, 20, it was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And, and so they were a biblical community. And we always must remain a biblical community. And, and you can't say that enough in this world because the church, and I say that loosely, the church is abandoning the Bible. I mean, a, a preacher will oftentimes get up and read a verse and then he'll take off on something that has nothing to do with what he read if he read a, a, if he read a verse. It becomes more the philosophies of men, the elementary principles of men, or how to be really fulfilled in life and how to live your best life now. And, you know, God only wants good for you. He wants you to be wealthy and healthy. And, you know, if you got, if you got pain issues or, like, I guess I'm a big-time continuing in sin all the time because I have so much pain. And, you know, if I wasn't sinning, I wouldn't have any pains. I go, what, what? It's a, the church has lost the Bible. It's lost the Bible. Not our group. We're committed to staying a biblical community. But it's not just in the preaching of the Word of God. It's in us living out the Bible. right? And, and you need more than a, a sermon on a Sunday for that to be true. You need to be reading your Bible. You need to be studying your Bible. You need to be talking the Bible with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You know that phrase, you know, cut open. Do I not bleed red? No, no, I bleed Bible. That is the way it ought to be. We bleed Bible, you know, because we put it in there. As David said in Psalm 19, I word of I hid my heart that I might not sin against you. So they were a biblical community. And you see that this is so very clearly. Uh, through the preaching uh, that goes on in the book of Acts. We must be a biblical community. They were a sharing community. Third mark that we talked about. That is found in the same verse. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, right? Fellowship. And fellowship, that Greek word koinonia, many of you heard it before, it means to share. It means to have a part. It is to be a partner, to have things in common, and uh, which is part of being a community, right? But it's sharing both what's in our heart as well as what's in our hands. It's sharing life. It's, it's sharing possessions. We read it in that text. Now, we're not required to go sell all of our possessions and give it 
to the poor, but we should be willing to do that if God so calls on us to do that. You know, Jesus talked to a rich and ruler about that one time, didn't he? Uh, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? We'll keep the commandments. And, and you know, what commands? Well, you know, love your father and mother and, you know, don't kill. And the, the, the commandments that dealt with man-to-man relationship, right? And he said, it's like, Good on me. I, I do that. You know, it's like I'm top of the heap at keeping the commandments. So I'm good? I'm good? Oh, well, one thing you like. Go sell all your possessions and give it to the poor and come and follow me. Now, God doesn't require us all to give away all our possessions and become poor. But if that is our God, then we have to get rid of it. And that's what he was telling that man. You may keep the five that deal with human relationships, but you are way off on your relationship with God. Money is your God. And, you know, the other commandments deal with that. You shall have no other gods before me, right? You shall worship no other, make no graven image, etc., etc. Keep the Sabbath, you know, honor it. Honor God, it's all about honoring God. And, and, And so, you know, this has marked the early church. They just were opening up their lives, their homes, their pocketbooks, their possessions. They shared life. And I, I mentioned to you last week, I, I, I so love our body that we're a sharing, a sharing church. You know, and, that, and that doesn't mean we all have the same income and we all live in the same you know, track houses and we all drive the same cars. It means that as I look at our body over the uh, the, since 1982 I've been a pastor here so in all those years I've seen this is a church that just opens their lives to one another and they take care of one another you need something done at your house let me help you that's what I was trying to do with Pastor Tom and Sandy this last week just give them a hand just open up my life a little bit and uh so it could be sharing of that, or it could be sharing of a word of encouragement to someone that's hurting. And, uh, you know, they were a sharing community. They devoted themselves to being a sharing community. And the church today must be that as well. And then the next one, same, same verse, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to... Fellowship, breaking of bread. They were a worshiping community, a worshiping community. Uh, we talked about it. I know this is a, maybe a long review, but, you know, review is how we remember, to be honest with you. So it's good to review this again over these last three weeks and again today. You know, the church is all messed up on this topic of worship as well. You know, most churches just think of worship as the singing that you do. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I hear it all the time. Even when I go visit my kids in, in Colorado, it's even common language with my kids. You know, it's like, oh, worship was great today. I know exactly what they mean. The singing was great. And, and singing is worship. We, hopefully that's what you were doing while we were singing this morning. You were worshiping our great... It's, it's great to be able to have biblical truth put into tunes that, you know, remind us of who God is and who we are in relation to him. So, yes, singing is worship. But worship is so much more than that, isn't it? Uh, 
you know, in, in just in a practical way, you know, I ought to be worshiping if I'm vacuuming the, the, the floor. If I'm cleaning the toilets, there was a book written by a monk, uh, Brother Lawrence, Practicing the Presence of God. That's kind of the focus of his book is like, I work in the kitchen and take care of the pantry and, you know, janitor and all of that. And it's all about me worshiping God. So worship is so broad. Now, in the context of the church meeting together, we worship the Lord as we're singing. We worship the Lord as we remembered him. And then we worship the Lord as we spend time, give him our attention and affection as we hear his word and then try to live it out. We worship the Lord as we share a meal together. But in the context of Acts 2.42, it says they were continually voting themselves to the apostles, teaching to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Now that was not a term or a phrase that referred to sharing meals together. That, look again at the text. So they devoted themselves to breaking bread. And then verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house they were taking their meals together. So even in that sentence, the breaking of bread from house to house is slightly separated from taking their meals together. There were two different things going on. Now, they would break bread together, the common phrase in the early church for the time of communion, uh, the time of thanksgiving, the Eucharist, uh, so whatever other terms you may use for it, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, you know, the bread and the cup. Uh, that became the term or the phrase for that, the breaking of bread. And they usually did it in the context of eating a meal together. I mentioned last week, we could do our remembrance after our meeting in here and we go to the other side and share a meal together. We could say, hey, as we're sharing this meal, let's just pause and break bread together. Well, we're already breaking bread and, and fruit and salad and meat and no, no, no. I'm talking about remembrance. And they were devoted to that. Worship, and particularly worship through remembrance. Talk about how important symbols are in the scripture. How important. You know, Steve mentioned the, the bracelet that his granddaughter gave him. And uh, it, you know, every time he looks at that, he's going to think of his granddaughter, Right? I talked about a you know a wedding ring. I uh, wear that. That doesn't make me married. That reminds me and tells other people that I am married and I should live like it. It's a symbol. And uh, I, this ring, I don't wear it all the time. It was my dad's ring, and I wear it in remembrance of him. I'm not particularly a jewelry guy, but I will wear this as a reminder of how thankful I am for my dad. Uh, so remembrance is so important. You see it throughout the, the Old Testament, symbols that were used. And, uh, and, and that's what this is. And the last Passover that Jesus had with his disciples, they had the Passover meal, which had a cup and had 
some bread and some bitter herbs and lamb and so on. But in the context of that meal, Jesus set up something new for the church, the, the new spiritual community. And that was worship through remembrance. Take this bread, eat of it. Uh, my body given for you. And we're not eating his body, but we're remembering that he gave his body. Uh, the cup, uh, you know, whether it's wine or grape juice, we use grape juice. You know, that's not his blood, but it reminds us that he gave his blood, gave up his life. His life is in the blood. So, you know, how does that stimulate, you know, worship, which I described last week, which is, you know, worship is our exaltation of God. Worship is dwelling on God and seeing all that he is and seeing who we are in relation to him and say, praise God, thank you so much for saving a sinner like me. You know, and... And that helps us to do that. It is a constant weekly reminder to us of how loving and merciful and gracious God has been for uh, to us. Amen. You know, dwell, dwelling or thinking about what God did for us in the past, I'll tell you, is much more important than dwelling on what God's going to do for you in the future. Understanding what God will do for you in the future is a, an important thing, too. I'm looking forward to that new body. You know, I won't be afraid to jump off of a, you know, two-foot-high step anymore. You know, I just don't do that stuff anymore because I don't know that my knees will survive. Uh, So I'm looking forward to that new body. I'm looking forward to not, you know, being indwelt by sin or giving myself over to temptation. I'm especially looking forward to you not being given over sin. (laughs) All of us. I'm looking forward to the future. You are too, right? Yeah. But the future only has meaning and promise for us because of what Jesus did in the past. And if you want to worship God, you need to think about what God has done for you in the past. Not only in the remembrance, that's the most important, but kind of review your life on a regular basis. Oh, God did this for me. You know, I I think about my wife, I mean, we're at 48 years, coming up on 49, and I think of how good God was to bring her to me and me to her those many years ago. And I've lived with the blessing of that. And then my kids, how God did that for us. And just how God helped me, helps me almost weekly in being able to preach, even though I may be suffering tremendously with a migraine headache. You know, God is just so good to me all the time. And I need to be reminded of that. I need to tell myself that. I need to focus on that. Because it will keep me faithful in the present. And excited about the future. So they were a worshiping community. Well, that was a long review, wasn't it? (laughs) But it was so exciting. It was so exciting. Well, we'll just cover one more today. And then we'll finish this series up next week. I think. I just have to put brackets like that in there because you never know what's going to happen when I go off the page, so to speak. Yeah, okay. They were a praying community. Again, same verse. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, sharing, to the breaking of bread, worship, and to prayer. 
So again, this in this one verse, we have these four very important marks or elements of what life was like in the early community that made it a healthy, vibrant, exciting community to be a part of. It's like most people don't think of prayer that way. Now, how many of you would be honest and say, you know, out of all the spiritual disciplines in life, prayer is the most difficult for me. You know, I think a high percentage of Christians would say that is true. They, they kind of know that they're talking to God when they pray, but, you know, they don't hear the audible voice back. So it's not kind of like having a conversation with my wife. Although I may talk to her and she may not answer me back either. So sometimes I'll just complete what I think she should have said. Like yesterday we were driving down to Girdwood for dinner uh, with our daughter and her family. And, and I said, that's so beautiful. Or No, it was, she responded to that when I said, it's so green out. And I said, yes, it is. <laughs> yes. So, you know, sometimes that's kind of a struggle. It's like, yeah, we're talking to God. And it's like, but it's not talking back. Well, yes, he is. He is. Not only is he listening, but if you read his Bible, you will hear him talking to you. That's right. So it's oftentimes good to pray in the context of reading your Bible. They go well together. And, and so that's what the early church was noted for. They, they were a praying community uh, in, in the early church you know they individually prayed and the history of the church shows that they prayed together it was just a mark of the early Christians to join together in this most important and intimate of godly disciplines and from the beginning of the book of Acts uh, through its end we find the believers constantly praying together in fact before the church was given birth in Acts 2, they were praying in Acts 1. Jesus went up to heaven, and they started praying. Uh, what were they praying about? Well, they were praying about the Holy Spirit coming, because that's what they were waiting for in the upper room, praying about that. Uh, they prayed about finding a replacement for Judas. I mean, the text tells us that. They, they prayed about those things even before the Holy Spirit came. And then we read in Acts 2.42, you know, that they were devoted to it. And once again, the very fact that prayer is mentioned so often in the book of Acts demonstrates how important it was in the early church. Say, how often was it mentioned? I'm so glad you asked that question. So let me tell you, it's 40 times alone in the book of Acts. You find the words pray or prayer. And they're not always the same Greek words, but... It's translated into English, various words that all refer to prayer. Let me give you a few examples. I think examples are always helpful, right? When did they pray? What did they pray about? Well, uh, we've give you an example in Acts chapter 4. Okay, Acts chapter 4. Peter and John were arrested for preaching the gospel after Peter had uh, healed the lame man in Acts 3. God opened the opportunity to preach the gospel, and that's what he did in Acts chapter 3. And in Acts chapter 4, they're arrested for doing so, brought before the same body of religious leaders that had pronounced Jesus as a blasphemer and 
were responsible for him being turned over to the Romans to be crucified. And, 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 and Peter tells, he preaches the gospel to them. You know, they're warned. And he says, there is no other name given among men, given under heaven, whereby we must be saved. It's in the name of Jesus. You know, that's where salvation, I'm not going to stop talking about that. And they communicate that to the religious religious leaders and the leaders elevate their threats you know you stop doing that you'll pay a price if you continue doing that we're going to make you pay and and then we get down to verse 23 or released and we read when they had been released they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them so where did they go they went to the church not the building, the people, right? They went to the church and they reported, you know, all those threats, what was said, what they said, etc. And, and the church responded. When they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. There's again that reminder that they were of one mind, they were unified. They lifted their voices with one accord. Notice what they prayed about. O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, they're quoting from the Old Testament, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, now they quote again from Psalm 2, why did the nations rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his, uh, his, his Christ. So what do they pray? Well, they first prayed, God, you are sovereign. They focused on the God's in control of it all. I mean, it was bad, you know, that the people rebelled in the Old Testament, and that's what had happened in Christ when he was delivered over. There was rebellion against God and his Christ. But the focus really is on God being sovereign. He says in verse 27, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. They came against Christ and you, but it was all you bringing it about. Powerful. Remind yourself, when things are hard, when you're facing persecution, remind yourself God's in control. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they're not saying, help us to hide, right? Help, you know, make sure that they don't hear that we're preaching about Jesus. You know, protect us that way. Give them, you know, deaf ears to what we're... No, they say, help us to speak with confidence, with boldness. In spite of their threats, help us to do that. And you yourself, show yourself big and strong, Lord. Like you just did with Peter that led to the persecution. You know, healed a lame man. Continue to do that kind of thing so that people will be drawn to Jesus. And then verse 31, notice what it says. And when they had prayed... The place where they had gathered together was shaken. And it's like an earthquake. The building shook. And I assume the people were shaken too. 
Like we just had a recent reminder of that earth-shaking thing, you know, not quite as bad as a couple years ago, but it was so exciting. My house was shaken, and it woke me up, and I was like, oh, this is exciting. I like, I like that. I'm awed that way, I think. But anyway, the place was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So they prayed and said, added to the prayer, help us speak with confidence. They prayed, and they spoke with confidence. You see, God was hearing their prayer, and God was answering their prayer right there. They were praying community. Oh, isn't that kind of exciting, isn't it? Man. Yeah. Uh, what else? Go over to chapter 6. Acts 6, starting in verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So let me tell you what's going on there. Uh, this is sometime after Passover, but what had happened, Passover was one of the three feasts every year where people were required to go to where the temple was and uh, sacrifice and worship the Lord. At least all the men and boys were, but whole families would travel. Where would they travel from? From Persia, from you know, other Gentile nations, Greece, Macedonia, etc. They would come from all over the place. And with what had happened on the day of Pentecost and how God started that new thing called the church, people just hunt, stayed. They, want, they don't want to leave that. That was too exciting. It was such a wonderful thing to be a part of, so they stayed. And as time went along, uh, you know, conflict, conflict arose within the people of God. Hmm. Has that ever happened today? Come on. Yeah, of course it does. We've experienced some of that, you know, as a result of COVID. Many churches have. And so conflict arises between believers. And, and so who are the Hellenistic Jews? They were Hellenistic widows who had come from Gentile nations. They'd come to worship. The Hebrew or the Hebrews were, you know, widows who lived and dwelt in Jerusalem or Judea. They were Judean you know, people. And they tended to feel like they were a little bit higher up on the importance ladder because, hey, they live in the Holy Land. Hey, they live close to the temple. Hey, 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 I'm better than you are. And, and so conflict arose, and, and uh, the Hellenistic widows were feeling like they were being mistreated. They weren't being treated fairly. They weren't getting the same amount of meat or the same uh, low number of loaves of bread, etc., etc. And, and they spoke out about it. And then verse 2, we read, So the twelve, that would be the apostles, right, summoned the congregation of the disciples. And he said, it's not, uh, they said, It's not desirable for us the apostles, to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. You see, they had to focus on the apostles' teaching, right? Which is the teaching of Jesus. They knew that. That was their most important duty, to focus on the teaching of the word of God. And, and, and it's not that, that, that serving tables was below them. 
It's just not what God had intended for them. He wanted other people to do that. And so they came up with the plan. They said, uh, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and uh, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. So, hey, you as uh, you know, the, the community, you put names in the hat, so to speak, and let's select seven men. You, you are going to select them. We're not going to select them. You select them, and then we will uh, acknowledge that and put them in a responsible position to serve in this area so that people are treated fairly. Did you notice, that, by the way, just as a side note, the importance of spiritual qualifications to serve tables? Like, why would you need the Holy Spirit and wisdom? To, well, you need wisdom because there's a whole lot of conflict going on. And you need the Holy Spirit to give you that wisdom. They had to be godly men. And by the way, did you notice it's men and not women? There's a lesson for us men. Let's be servants, even within our own homes. You know, don't leave it all to your wife or your kids. Well, I, you know, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the, the king. I come home, and, you know, my castle, and I expect my children put my, my, you know, take my shoes off and put on my, you know, walk around socks, or if it's winter, my uh, comfy, cozy, warm slippers and, you know, I'll sit in the living room and turn on the news and I'll, I'll listen to all that stuff. No, no, no. Join in the work. Be a servant in your home. It's a good message for dads today. So, so let's do it that. So it says, we, the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That's most important for the shepherds to do that. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, uh, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Um, by the way, all those names were Greek names. They were choosing Hellenist to make sure the Hellenistic widows were taken care of, right? That's wisdom. That's wisdom right there. And, uh, and these they brought before the apostles. And after praying, they laid their hands on them. And then it, you know, the problem was taken care of. So when did they pray? Well, they prayed in a time of conflict among believers. They prayed when there was persecution from the outside. And they prayed when there's conflict among the believers. And then in a, also at Acts 12. Go over there. Just got a few more. Acts 12. Herod uh, the king, verse 1, had laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, uh, so one of the apostles, put to death with the sword. It's amazing, isn't it? One of, the, one of the key 12 guys that has spoken about a lot in the Gospels. Simple statement. He was put to death by the sword. It's like, wow. When he saw that it pleased, Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, meaning the religious leaders of the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. 
go to the horse's mouth, so to speak. Let's get rid of that loudmouth guy. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivered him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church. And then you read on the next verse, and, and God delivers Peter miraculously. He's, you know, he's in there locked up tight, right? Do you notice four squads of soldiers? An angel shows up. Peter's sleeping. He's not worried about what's going to happen. He's sound asleep, kind of like Jesus in the boat during the storm. He was at peace. And he's asleep, and an angel wakes him up. Hey, Peter, come on, let's get out of here. You know, and, and he releases the bonds and opens the locked gate, and, and Peter and the angel just kind of walk out, and God rescues him. Uh, and here's where it gets really good and rather funny uh, when you think about it. So he gets out, uh, verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he says, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. It's like he had to get outside the prison before he realized, I'm not dreaming. This is like real. Lord rescued me. And in verse 12, and when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark. Yes, Mark, who wrote the gospel of Mark, where many people were gathered together and were praying. So when Peter got out, where did he go? To the church. Just like they had in chapter 4, they went to the church where they were, what? Praying. That's right. And when he knocked on the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she did not open the gate. <laughs> that's, that's funny. That's funny. Oh, it's Peter. And she runs back inside, leaves him standing outside. <laughs> she ran in and she announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. Now it gets funnier. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. Like, he couldn't possibly be freed. And, uh, but Peter continued knocking. That's just awesome. I love, love this story. He keeps on knocking. He's like, okay. My wife was telling our neighbors last night, one time she was out late for dinner with some ladies. I'd gone to bed. She hadn't taken her key to the house with her. I'll never figure that kind of thing out. But anyway, when she got home, uh, she began knocking on the door, no response. She didn't know what bedroom I might be in because in our old age, we were not sleeping as well. So we kind of move around the house depending on where we might be able to find some sleep. And, and she started knocking and knocking on various windows. And finally, she was able to wake me up. Knock, 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 knock. Peter's knocking. And, uh, and so when they opened the door, they saw him, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hands to be silent, <laughs> he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. That would have been James, the Lord's brother. Because James, John's brother, had already been killed, right? 
So this is James that wrote the epistle and to the other brothers. And, and then he left and went to another place. What were they doing? They were praying. They had a hard time believing that God answered their prayer, which is kind of like what Christians are like a lot of the times. Sometimes they, you know, God answers their prayer and they, they won't recognize that he's done it. They won't give him thanks for it. And they should. So when did they pray? Well, they prayed in a time of crisis. Persecution, conflict, crisis. One chapter over, Acts 13. Starting in verse 1, Now there were at Antioch in the church that were there prophets and teachers. Who? Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Did you get that? Brought up in the house of the king. And Saul, who is Paul, later called Paul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from him. Now, we don't know how the Holy Spirit said this, right? It doesn't tell us. Whether it's audible voice, it, it could have been that. Uh, or it was just a kind of an inner leading, you know, that they, they felt all together. Anyway, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work which I've called them. And then they, uh, when they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they were sent away. What were they doing? They were praying. Praying about what? About obeying the Holy Spirit and sending out Paul and Barnabas. Praise God that that happened. That was the first missionary journey where the gospel went out to the Gentiles in mass. That's us, right? Because what they did in obedience to the Holy Spirit, we've reaped the benefit of it. So they, when did they pray? They prayed in a time of expanding ministry. Well, it's what Jesus had said, right? Be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Philip had done that in Acts 8 uh, to the uttermost parts of the world. So they were obeying the Lord's commands, expanding ministry, and they were praying about it. Just two more. Acts 14, 23. Actually, I'm going to pick up before that. But Acts 14. The first missionary journey is going on. And, and they're going to all kinds of places in what is modern Turkey. Well, it was part of Asia Minor in the Roman world. Uh, various cities like Lyconium and uh, Lystra and so on. In fact, the very place where Timothy came from. In fact, he probably got saved when Paul brought the gospel to the, his city. And then he later becomes, you know, an apostolic delegate, if you will, and a, and a pastor in the church at Ephesus and a traveling companion with Paul in his second and third journeys. Anyway, so they're preaching the gospel, going from city to city, and, and there's conflict going on and attacks, persecution. Verse 19, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Having run over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So, spoke boldly, persecution. He didn't run from it. He was stoned. They thought he was dead. He wasn't. God saved him from that. When the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. And the next day he went away with Barnabas and Derby, uh, to Derby. 
After they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, the very cities where they had started out the missionary journey, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, elders, plural, in every church, singular, having prayed with fasting, prayed with fasting, prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed, and then they continued on. So when did they pray? In a time of solidifying growth in the church and developing leadership within each church. One more, Acts 21. Starting in verse 1. This is at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. In chapter 20, he had been speaking with the elders of the church of Ephesus and giving them, you know, kind of a farewell instructions and a departure. He didn't think he would ever see them again, that he knew he'd get to Jerusalem and he might die there. Anyway, in verse 21, it says, or chapter 21, when we had uh, parted from them, and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went on board and set sail. And we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left. We, were, we kept sailing to Syria and landed in Tyre, uh, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Uh, this would just be an encouragement to you. When you're reading things like this, get out your Bible maps. Look up those places so you have an idea of what's, where they're at. This all in the Mediterranean Sea and, uh, you know, in different parts of, the, of, the, of uh, that world. But uh, it, it'd be helpful for you. Know where it's going on, what's happening. Verse 4, and after looking up the disciples, where did they go? To the church, right? To the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Uh, when our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we came out of the city. And after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. And by the way, when Paul did go to Jerusalem, that was what led to his first imprisonment. First in Caesarea, uh, Caesarea and then all the way to Rome. Uh, so it was true, there was much suffering awaiting him. And while the believers didn't want him to go because they didn't want their brother to face that, God had a better plan to get the gospel to Rome while Paul was a prisoner. Anyway, did you notice the prayer part, right? They, they're kneeling down on the beach and they are praying, praying. And, and so when were they praying? At a time of sorrow in their thinking, a time of departure, saying farewell. You know, think back 16 years ago when Rusty and Brandy left, that was their departure. Those are hard times when you've been fellowshipping with people, for so long, and then they leave the great land for the flat land. <laughs> it, it can be hard. It can be hard. But 
What do you do? You take your hardness, not hardened hearts, but the hardness that you're facing, the sorrow to be grieving, death, or whatever. You know, it's a, it's a farewell. You, you pray about it. You pray about it. Well, we'll stop there. Just so you know, I'm not really done talking about prayer. We'll just pick that up next week. Wow. Thank you for not stoning me and leaving me for dad for going to 12-12. And thank you for the Sunday school, being sensitive, uh, being willing to do that, and for the people fixing lunch and their thing. Get done, get done, let's go. Okay, let's get done. Lord, we are thankful for the spiritual community that you've made us part of. First of all, the universal church. How gracious and merciful that you would take lost people, people from the kingdom of darkness, whose father was the devil, and you would make them your own. You would adopt them into your family and draw them into the kingdom of your beloved son. That's us, and we are thankful for that. We're thankful for the gospel, which the early church so boldly preached, which we want to boldly preach. But Lord, we, we want to be that kind of community. We must be if we're to have an impact in our world. So help us as we continue to muse on this together to see where we are as a church, but also see where we are as individuals within this church. Are we doing our part or are we not? What changes must we make so that we'll be the spiritual community that you want us to be? So help us in the days ahead. And help us to not look at it as overwhelming, but rather to look back what you've already done for us and move forward with confidence what you'll do in the future. We give you all praise and glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.